people get sometimes captured by their first phase. They put a lot of their heart and soul into it. They maybe develop some proprietary strategies, maybe even some proprietary language and themes. And quite frankly, it's hard to abandon some of those that maybe didn't work or to revise and update them. And I think the best CEOs find a way to keep the core set of messages consistent, but they vary the strategies and, and optimize and adapt based on learnings. From McKinsey & Company, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard Kurt Strovink, a senior partner in our New York office, sharing our perspective on some of the challenges that CEOs face in mid-tenure. Kurt is a seasoned CEO counselor and the co-leader of our global CEO services. Kurt, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Sean. Looking forward to it. We're also really pleased to welcome Carolyn Dewar, a senior partner in our San Francisco office who co-leads our CEO excellence practice. Carolyn is also a co-author of CEO Excellence, the New York Times bestselling book. Carolyn, thanks for being here today. Thanks so much for having us, Sean. Okay, so today's podcast focuses on how mid-tenure CEOs can continue to thrive in the role. And it's part of our new series on the phases of the CEO journey. You can read more about this in Kurt and Carolyn's article, Staying Ahead, How the Best CEOs Continuously Improve Performance. We've also included a link to their article and the series in the show notes. Carolyn, why don't you start us off by sharing how this mid-tenure chapter fits into the larger series? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sean. As you mentioned, today is, is a part of a series of articles and research that we've been putting together around the life cycle of a CEO. So we have one around CEO candidates, you know, become a new CEO. Today is really focused on mid-tenure CEOs. You've made it through that initial kind of S-curve. Now what? Now what do you do? And before we dive into that specifically, we wanted to just give a little grounding on the research behind this series of articles and, and these interviews. A lot of it is founded in our CEO excellence research. We had the opportunity to sit down one-on-one -on -one with about 70 of the world's highest performing CEOs and really spend time understanding what is the role anyway? How do they do it well? What do they wish they'd done differently? What are lessons learned? When we talk about the CEO role and what is it anyway, this is sort of the core framework or the core foundation that, that we come back to time and time again. These six responsibilities of the role. A CEO's role is to set the direction, right? All things strategy and vision. Does the company know where it's headed and why? Aligning the organization around the culture, the talent, the org design. Is it ready to go to execute on that strategy? Mobilizing through leaders. This is one aspect that as you get more and more senior is so core to the CEO role where your job is less about doing it, doing the work, and it's all about enabling others to be at their best and to lead. And so as you play that almost um, orchestra conductor role, how are you going to mobilize your leaders to play beautiful music together? They have to engage with the board, right? Again, not just manage the board, but engage with the board. And what does that look like in a productive way? How do you shape that relationship with such a key stakeholder? Then you have to connect with all of the other external stakeholders who have an opinion on your business, right? Investors, regulators, the media, the public at large, how do you engage on what topics? What does that look like? And then finally, bringing it all together around your own personal effectiveness. So who will you be as a leader in this role? How will you spend your time and energy? What's the highest and best use so that you're doing the work that only you can do? 
Thanks, Carolyn. And I just want to mention that you can explore uh, the entire collection on CEO Excellence, covering all of our CEO Excellence research, and learn more about the book as well as each stage of the CEO journey at mckinsey.com slash CEO journey. So Kurt, how do those responsibilities that Carolyn just ran through change for CEOs in mid-tenure? You're a mid-tenured CEO that may have had a a first strong run of leadership, but you're now getting to the point where you have to think about altering, doubling down, maybe renewing that first impulse. And one of the things to say about this, this stage is that being a CEO and a successful one at that is, is difficult and it's not guaranteed. In fact, the unassisted probability that you might be able to move your company from about the middle of the pack to really top quartile performance is about one in 12. It's not that easy. And strategy, as we all know, is is probabilistic. And you have to create different ways of leaning into what is otherwise a fairly uncertain world. And one of the things that sometimes happens at this mid-tenure is, is the unforeseen, you know, crises that you don't see that you need to adapt to. Or sometimes a certain complacency sets in. I don't think it's that people mean to be complacent. It's just that you've you've gotten used to the role, maybe. Um, some of the initial jitters of being a CEO, the, the, the learning period of the early stages is behind you. And you haven't yet decided how you're going to renew or lead in that next chapter. And so we think some of these things make it more difficult to be a CEO. You have to constantly elevate your ambition. You have to constantly think about the next frontier, often as builds on what you've done before. And it's it's relevant, all the statistics we have sort of show the fact that this is still a learning experience for most CEOs, even in the mid-tenured part of their careers. So when would you say the mid-tenure typically kicks in? Uh, we know that CEO tenures have gotten shorter. So what really are the middle years? Yeah. No, it's a great question. I think usually we would say a mid-tenure can start at as early as two years into the role. Typically, it's more like three. But one of the indicators is that you feel that that first set of things that you've done to launch the company on its journey with you as a CEO has burned in. Right, It may not have fully exhausted its potential, but it's largely in the record as opposed to in the future. And you're getting to that point where you need to build, refresh, or even modify that trajectory in order to get the highest return for the company. Um, and it's, it's a feel thing. There's no formula to it. And I think CEOs that are s- sort of aware of the fact that there will come a point where the, the initial burst will plateau and the next uh, S-curve, as we sometimes call it, will need to be uh, pursued, do the best. And and that's a very important private and, and conversation with the senior team and maybe with the board and, and, and other stakeholders about when is the right time to lift uh, that second S-curve out of, uh, of, your, uh, of your CEO tenure. So I would say, you know, Sean, really earliest two years, but if, if you're not thinking about it at year three, you're probably missing an opportunity. Got it. That makes sense. Okay. So assuming that you're entering your mid-tenure as CEO, what are some of the priorities that you should be focusing on at this stage in your tenure? And how do the best CEOs prepare for that next S-curve to make the most of their mid-tenure years? We see four things that are repeat patterns. The learning agenda that they put in place or that they pursue themselves, that tends to be a marker of, this, of getting the second S-curve right. Oftentimes at the very beginning of, uh, of one's leadership, you're learning a ton. You're, you're, you know, it's an extraordinary period of learning. You're doing listening tours. You're expanding your own network of, of knowledge. You're meeting stakeholders for the first time. You're interacting as a CEO in different communities. It's often a period of great personal learning 
And it's also a moment of institutional renewal for the for the company itself, especially if it's done well, as we wrote about in our last article, Starting Strong. Because what you're trying to do as a CEO is open up a company to be able to learn. And that's actually part of your role as a CEO, to renew uh, in the early years. When that actually starts phasing into the second or third years, the learning rate typically declines unless you double down on it. And so the key element is you now have history, you have successes, things have worked, things have failed. You have additional learnings coming from inside the company. And the second is that you have the chance to broaden externally more because some of the core aspects of doing the the rhythms of the CEO job uh, are becoming more familiar, more comfortable, more scaled. Obviously, um, talking to different groups and learning externally can take multiple forms. Uh, Sometimes it's around going more deep with a customer. Um, and actually learning more about customers. In fact, the the Lego CEO, uh, one of the companies that's been very successful, the CEO is very successful, actually spent time with focus groups and customers and actually learned that adults were huge uh, potential segments of, of Legos and built out a franchise that's now 30% of the business coming from adults, in fact. That all came from extra time, in this case, he spent with customers at the mid-tenure point of a CEO career. And so often the customer insights, especially if you go thematic and deeper there, can can provide some really interesting ideas for that excess curve. Similarly, shareholder relationships and spending more time with investors can be incredibly important. Many investors uh, will want short-term hits. Uh, you know, they may be pushing you for, for uh, you know, share buybacks or other things that are more short-term in nature, but there will be longer-term investors who will actually be partners to you in thinking about deep value creation levers. And we've seen many CEOs in the mid-tenure go deeper with a select number of investors to actually, in a sense, co-create what the story and the narrative will look like in the next chapter. They don't delegate that to shareholders, of course, but they are informed strongly by what those shareholders think. And they pick those people selectively where they think have that staying capacity and that imagination. And so that's another thing that we tend to see. A third might be this network of fellow CEOs. You know, Ed Breen of DuPont talked a lot to us about how the network that he built across uh, not just the industry, but across industries with fellow CEOs were often very provocative for the next phase of his journey and and gave him ideas that he might not have had inside of the building or even in his own industry. And we do see that also as a pattern among mid-tenured CEOs that are very strong on setting up this Nest S-curve. They often expand their relationship networks with fellow CEOs. In fact, one of the things that Carolyn and I and our fellow author, uh, Scott, wrote about in COVID in 2020 was the fact that we were seeing a a dramatic increase in CEOs spending time across industry lines with other CEOs, partly because COVID created a lot of common problems that everybody wanted to compare notes on. But many of those networks have remained and have deepened uh, since COVID, we find. And that could be a great source of energy for, for mapping the next S-curve as well. That's great. So how do CEOs organize the learning agenda we just talked about? And whom do they typically rely on inside the company? Maybe a, if I could, Kurt, just for a very literal example, not everyone does it quite this deliberately, but just to paint the bookends. You know, both Satya Nadella and, and Bill Gates and Microsoft, so maybe it's something about their structure. They take it very literally and they set aside a day a month as their CEO learning day. And they work with their chief of staff in advance to, to think about what are the topics that they want to learn more about. Maybe it's, to Kurt's point, something from another industry or a new technology or a new trend. And in advance, they actually have folks 
prepare reading for them and they go away. They're both you know, readers and they go away and they read and they learn and they come up with questions and they might circle back so that next month there might be a round two on that topic. That's a very literal interpretation, but both of them have been doing it for many, many years. And it also role models to the organization, the idea of a learning mindset, which is one of the big cultural shifts they were trying to drive. But Kurt, I'm sure you've seen lots of other practical applications. No, those are, those are great, Carolyn. I would add one of the things we do not mean just to be clear on learning, is a CEO who pops out in the external world and comes back with a new idea every week. Yeah. Uh, and Great. that is a phenomenon. It's often a failure mode that we do see where somebody has a new idea because they're constantly learning, they're reading lots of books, they're interacting every with- Every morning, there's a new book everyone has to read, right? <laughs> right. And there's something new, there's some new framework, but it sort of torques the organization and it makes it difficult to execute against a real mission. We're not talking about that kind of learning. We're talking about uh, a, a kind that 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 births uh, an important iceberg that next rises on top of the previous one that was there. It's a bigger pivot, a bigger move. It's it's deeply considered. Uh, that's the kind of thing we need. Deeper study of fewer core ideas that really have shaping power for institutions. That's the kind of deep learning. I would add a couple other things. Uh, we often see an increase in what, what you might call go and sees in the in the mid tenure going to see in situ another company facing a similar problem. Maybe it's not in your industry. Often that is something that's a collaborative effort to your question, Sean, with the CEO and the top team, other business leaders. But one of the questions I, I like to sometimes ask is, what are the most controlling and important analogies that would help you at this mid-tenure point in your company that might exist in other industries or with other CEOs and teams? Uh, where is somebody else, maybe not a direct competitor or in your category, where is somebody else doing something in you know, as an analogy to what you're doing that you could go and learn from, that you could forge a connection with and you could learn. So that's, I think you could also, um, you can also expect a CHRO to have a role in institutionalized learning. And how do we ensure that each leader, maybe in the top, you know, several layers of the company actually has a learning agenda for learning outside of, uh, of the company. Um, it's important to maintain those networks and for the organization to become porous with other firms and the, and other industries to learn. And it's something that the CEO can role model very powerfully by asking questions, by asking what you've learned. What do we know today that we didn't know three months ago, six months ago? The other thing that you have is you have much greater specific learning from the first phase as CEO. And your team has been through that too. So there may be learnings, course corrections, other things of a practical nature that will also be part of that internal learning to marry to some of the external learning uh, that's happening more broadly. But the key is to make sure that multiple people are involved in this and that you do not ossify. And that the, the great period of learning at the early stages when you were new doesn't tail off and, and plateau itself. We want to keep that learning going and that we, 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 we see that as being important for the second phase that CEOs go through. So how do you suggest a CEO capture the lessons he or she has learned through this process and then share them throughout their organization? Well, a couple um, maybe examples of, of things I would say is in one situation, I'll, I'll keep it confidential, but a CEO is very focused with his company around creating institutionalized ways of running the company and called these systems. And they were interrelated transformation, almost methods that were used, but, but, but he was self-conscious about learning and burning in one of these methods, for example, on you know, developing the culture towards being more self-starting and focused on, you know, efficiency and frontline mobilization and an owner's mindset. 
and then migrating that system once it was accomplished and the rhythms were set to another system that was another institutionalized set of learning. For example, to growth and becoming more of a growth culture and a business builder mindset and those types of things. And so there were chapters of, if you will, synthesis or builds. And each of those was its was its sort of uh, initial system. And then a system was built on top of that system and things developed from there. And so you tend to see these, these builds on themes that were present before, but they get sharper and more refined and they have their next chapters. Thanks, Kurt. Uh, Carolyn, anything you'd add here? No, uh, only uh, in the, how do they take notes? How do they capture? Almost all the CEOs we talk to have some sort of notebook. I know it sounds old school. Some do it online, some don't. But there is something about the act of capturing the thinking, refining on it. You know, people really missed their airplane time during COVID because it was their time to kind of reflect on maybe the series of customer meetings they had that day or external meetings and kind of consolidate and say, what do I think? What does this mean for us? Sean, uh, sorry, to maybe just one other thought that just occurs to me based on Carolyn's comment there. One of the other things that we've often talked about is that the CEO role is sometimes about calibration itself and about what levels um, of change and extent of change you think you need at any given point in time. So one of the one of the practical things is also to ask, are we moving fast enough and material enough against our strategic priorities relative to our competitor set? And just to really force yourself at each in each year as a CEO to ask that question, you know, fast enough pace, material enough scope, reach, investment. Um, and are we moving uh, against uh, a set of strategic priorities that we have in relative terms? We sometimes call this strategic distance, not just strategy. But I think that's a really important governor. Uh, and we sometimes talk about the CEO as a chief calibration officer. And we think that's one of the things that can't be easily delegated or shouldn't be by CEOs that can take a full view of the organization. Okay. So Carolyn, can you share some of the other things that CEOs should do in their mid-tenure? Super. That's a great bridge, actually, as we as we think about this second insight around how to take an outsider's perspective. By definition, that's similar to what Kurt was talking about, of how do you get that rightful calibration? Right? There's a story we like, or a piece of research we like to talk about from uh, Daniel Kahneman. So he was a Nobel Prize winning psychologist, and he's done a lot of research with different companies. And one of them he did with the Campbell Soup Company, where they were they were testing selling soup, right? 79 cents a can. And in half the stores, they just put it out there and said, here's the sale at 79 cents a can. In the other half the stores, they said 79 cents a can, limit 12 per customer. Well, what do you think happened, right? It's what you can imagine, but fascinating. You know, for, for the ones that just said it was on sale, 79 cents a can, on average, people bought three. Three cans seemed like a good deal. For the stores where it said limit 12 per customer, people bought seven. Now, there was no difference, right? Other than what was different, this, this notion of, well, if some people buy 12, I'll go down from that, as opposed to my current state is I'll buy zero and I'll work up to number three. It's an anchoring bias, right? It's natural thought process that we use as humans. It's actually very efficient for us. It's a tool that our brains have to quickly jump to answers with incomplete information. But it's, it highlights the fact that we tend to anchor on data we already have and move up or down from there. This happens in, in our businesses all the time, right? The average budget from year to year across business units or functions shifts just a couple of percent a year, right? It's what was the budget last year and let's tweak it. 
very rarely do we take a fresh perspective and say, if I was just walking in cold, what would good numbers actually look like? What should the budget be? What should our sales be? What should our strategic distance be, to Kurt's point? And this is what these excellent CEOs do at the mid-tenure. They really take an outsider perspective, looking across the indicators of their business, right? Both leading indicators, output indicators, hard and soft. And they say, if I was going to take a really fresh eyes view, how does it look? What are the threats? What are the opportunities? What questions would I ask? I love this story from Intel where you know Andy Grove and Gordon Moore were struggling with what should we do next with Intel? And they had a few ideas. And Andy Grove asked Gordon Moore, well, what happens if you and I got kicked out, right? We're the CEO and the president and a new CEO walked in. What would he or she do differently? And, and the answer is actually quite easy. Moore responded and said, well, they would, the new CEO would get us out of memory chips. It doesn't make sense. Any new person, that's the first thing they would do. And they looked at each other and sort of said, well, why, why aren't we doing that then, right? Why aren't we doing that to ourselves and disrupting ourselves? Sometimes it's an activist who does that for you, right? And comes in with that fresh view. But even the, even the practice in private equity, for example, of you know, re-examining the asset every two to three years with fresh eyes and saying, if we were to re-diligence this, would we buy it? What would we do? What would be the value creation thesis? That's what these excellent CEOs are doing. If they're taking a capital markets view, right? What do investors and what does the what do the markets expect of us? What growth have they built in? What are the things they're frustrated by? Right? If we look strategically, are we in the right businesses, the right geographies? Right? Are we are are there mergers and acquisitions that should we should we be doing? What do our numbers look like? Is there a revenue where it needs to be? What do our costs look like? And also from an organizational point of view. Do we have a healthy organization with the turnover that we want, the talent pools we want, the cultural indicators that we want, the level of buy-in and motivation from our team? And then externally, again, reputation-wise, is our reputation in, with, with the media, with public at large, in our stakeholder groups, helping or hindering us? This idea of taking a fresh eyes view so that really you're clear-eyed and saying, what have we accomplished? Where are we today? But then as we look forward, what are those threats and opportunities that we really need to be willing to look at and have the open and honest dialogue? Again, to Kurt's point, not just sort of continuing to play the movie that we started on in our in our first era, but really saying, oh, okay, fresh perspective. If it was a new day, what would we do? So that, that seems like something that most CEOs would try to do on a regular basis, right? Are there any barriers that prevent them from taking on these external perspectives? I mean, a lot of the barriers are in the so more of the, the mindset and the social fabric. This is hard to do, right? It, it's hard to admit that maybe the thing you're building isn't perfect, right? It's, it takes real humility to be willing to, frankly, even open yourself up to this sort of analysis. Often it's helpful to have external voices in the mix actually helping to push the thinking and challenge the questions. Um, and how do you create a safe environment where it's okay for the leadership team to admit and even say, hey, I don't know that what we're doing is the exact right thing for this next era. Maybe it got us to here, but it needs to get you there. So this mixture of having the real facts, so it's not based on just anecdote. So real facts, the willingness to confront them, and the willing to have hard conversation. Kurt, I'm sure you've seen this play out in different places as well. 
Well, no, I, Caroline, I think your your points are great ones. I mean, I think people get, Sean, sometimes captured by their first phase. They put a lot of their heart and soul into it. They've, they've maybe developed some proprietary strategies, maybe even some proprietary language and themes. And quite frankly, it's hard to abandon some of those that maybe didn't work or to revise and update them. And I think that the best CEOs find a way to keep the core set of messages consistent, but they vary the strategies and and, and optimize and adapt based on learnings. And and they're and they're constantly looking for signals of what's working and and not, and they adapt. So I think that's kind of one uh, you know one one marker of good CEOs or one failure mode for people who don't do that. I think a uh, you know a, and we know that strategy is dynamic. So there are elements of this that have to evolve even in good strategy thinking as well. Any good strategy will tack like a sailing boat as well. It won't always go in a straight line to its target. It will go back and forth. And I think you know strong CEOs in their mid tenures have that mindset. I think another thing is that sometimes the rotation of positions and leadership teams needs to evolve as well to keep pace. And sometimes people pick their team and say, this team is the team until you know I retire. Uh, and I think there's a certain evolution that's natural. People will be gifted for certain chapters and S-curves of company transformation. That goes for the top team as well. And CEOs that are alive to the fact that, this, that, that, that the top team and group may need to evolve to keep pace with these, these evolving challenges, ultimately themselves as well as CEOs, I think do the best at leaning into what's ne- necessary for each chapter. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so Kurt, do you want to take us through how mid-tenure CEOs chart their next S-curve? Yes. So let's talk about this collaboratively defining an S-curve a little bit more. And I think the, the as Carolyn talked about, if you combine the outsider's mindset with some of the learning that I talked about in the first point, you get to a point where you can actually define what is this next S curve going to be, and I, as I suggested, you know, often what we see is not a wholesale departure from the first chapter. It's often a, a significant step function build on the last set of themes and strategies that we're focused on. But it is distinct, and it is a step up. And what we wanted to talk about here in this third idea is, is how do CEOs pick and shape that with their top teams, and how do their operating models as CEOs maybe change? So that's what this is about. If we um, if we think about uh, you know an essential pattern that we've noticed in the first uh, chapter of CEO leadership in the you know in the starting strong period, you tend to see folks owning and and leading directly from the front. They need to as CEOs, they're new themselves. What you tend to see in this second phase is a little bit more shaping a team that's leading and creating the conditions under which other leaders can step up while, and this is super important, while never losing the initiative setting potential of being a CEO. Uh, It isn't a delegation committee, see what you come up with kind of approach. It's typically a CEO led still, but with more leadership from the team than you'd see in maybe that first chapter. This concept of an S-curve is the idea that often early on in strategy development, there's a number of things forming. There's a number of different initiatives that you launch. And then at a certain point, you get to cruising speed where they start really hitting and you're getting a combinatorial compounding effect. And there's a very steep part of acceleration and performance. And then they do level off. They have their own sort of uh, S-curve. And we, we call this an S-curve just because of the shape, uh, but it's important to realize when you start getting to the point where you're plateauing. And usually we would say that can start as early as two years. It's often three um, and sometimes it can be three and a half, but it's it's in that zone where uh, there's a there's a need to to reset um, the, the strategy. One example of this, if we think about other CEOs, is what Uber Jolie did at Best Buy. 
where the first chapter of the of the of the story that he was on with Best Buy was a turnaround, and he led it very much from the front, and it and it was very important and was a you know a very significant departure maybe from the previous era at Best Buy was a significant step up in performance. But that ran its course at a certain point where I think he felt that it was important to declare the transformation over uh, because the company couldn't live in perpetual transformation. That was a that was a by its nature, a discrete point in time. And he did transition though to a different self-conscious growth phase that built on that transformation and the turnaround nature of that earlier transformation. And then got much more focused on building all the capabilities with with smart homes and everything else that they did as part of their strategy. But those were the two different steps. And, and I think he came to a point where he realized that that first chapter needed to sunset and the second chapter or S-curve could be built upon the gains. So two two major messages from this section. One, that there is something called an S-curve um, and that you'd be well advised as a CEO to assume that one S-curve is not going to be your full tenure uh, unless your tenure is unusually short because there's, more, there's usually multiple S-curves that are required and you need to become a student as to what that second S-curve is going to be. At. And second, that often your operating model will itself have to adjust to take into account the need to prioritize and create more leadership around you, and which is also more appropriate when you're getting a dividend on your time, you understand the CEO role more. It makes sense that as part of that, other senior leaders around you will step up more at the second escrow. Indeed. And and so are there different time horizons for different S-curves? And how do the successful CEOs, both mid-tenure and, and throughout the tenure, spot when they're hitting the crest on one S-curve and that they need to move to the next one to not get stuck on a plateau? Well, I would say th- there's a couple different ones. One is that you're seeing from the initiatives that you've launched in the first chapter, you're just seeing less actual performance yield than you did in the steepest part of the S-curve. That can come in a lot of different forms. Uh, I would also say on efficiency programs and cost programs and other things, there's many going on in the world today, given obviously the, the markets and the global economy. It's difficult to maintain momentum in a transformational setting around costs for much more than 24 months. And so you tend to see exhaustion in the organization that, that, that comes in. The key is not to allow the first side of exhaustion to, to uh, be a marker because that's in, inherent in many things in large organizations and it's part of the CEO leadership to actually push through that in imaginative ways with the top team. But I think another is that you know, you're beginning to see evidence of others innovating um, sometimes in your companies in new ways from the original strategy that was set up and you want to put a supercharge on that. And sometimes your job as a CEO and top team is to spot where that's happening and then eventually scale. And sometimes you're seeing dramatic departure or change in the external environment in competitive uh, spaces. And you know, if you don't get on a new trend quickly, which builds on the old, you know, you could lose some of the strategic distance. Those would be a three or four uh, markers that, that I would suggest. Carolyn, you'll probably have other thoughts. No, I love that. I think the only build I'd have is, you know, a lot of these CEOs, they don't wait for the markers. And so a lot of these leaders are thinking about it very early, right? Almost as soon as they have, you know, the first set agenda and set of priorities set, they have their team aligned against it. People are up and running and driving. It doesn't mean that they're going to whip whiplash the organization and constantly be changing. But I think the good CEOs are always thinking about what could come next? What could that be? And then to Kurt's point, you need to know when is time to actually put that into action. Um, but that really is part of the job. It's, if it's not you, then who else 
is able to kind of be looking ahead while the organization is running the current play. Great. Thank you. You, you touched briefly on the relationship between the team structure and moving on to the next S-curve. Are there any anecdotes that you can share in terms of how a CEO thought about not only evolving their strategy to pursue the next S-curve, but also how they tied their team's development or their organization's development to that move onto the next S-curve? Absolutely. I think it's such an important question, right? After every strategic discussion about where are we headed, what might that next direction or that next tack be in our path, the second question is, well, do we have the talent and the team to enable us to pull that off? Sometimes CEOs, it's just adding a role. Wow, you know, if digital is going to be really critical to this next phase, do we need that voice represented even on our most senior leadership team? Sometimes it's about you know, being willing to take that really honest view of the talent, even in those roles and saying, are they the right leaders? You see a lot of companies, especially in hyper growth, I'm here on the West Coast in the US, you know, when they hit IPO or they're preparing for IPO and then they're going beyond, right? That founding team where you all started out together in, you know, someone's garage, at some point that might not be the same team that needs to take you forward. It's not that they're not hugely talented, but is that the CFO you need to navigate you through an IPO, right? Where there's a very specific skill set, a very specific set of experiences you want from any leader in that role, given your next phase. And the question can extend further down into the organization. We often talk about kind of a talent to value agenda. Do you know the 40 or 50 roles that are most important to get the talent right, given your strategy? Do you have A players in those roles? Are you disproportionately paying attention because they will make or break your success in that next phase. These are all strategic questions. These aren't something just to be outsourced you know, to HR or done in a, in a talent review process. These are an essential part of your, your plan of how you're going to execute. Right. So in your research, did you come across any examples where the CEO said, you know what? I see a really exciting S-curve coming, but this just isn't for me. I'm going to find the next CEO to take us to that next level. There are certainly some examples of that, but one of the things that you often see in, in, in leading CEOs, Sean, is that they are actually thinking about the, the end in the middle and the middle of the beginning. <laughs> and they do have an ability to, to think ahead. They don't have a necessarily crystal ball, but they know that they're always supposed to be you know, having strong high beams you know, and they're looking around corners. And I think one of the things that you do see in the mid-tenure and that makes the operating model evolve and the stepping up of other leaders around is that some people are already thinking about succession. They're thinking about who are the three or four people internally who could lead this firm going forward and what are their roles? Are they getting cross-enterprise opportunities? And how can I ladder those responsibilities together for this next S-curve? Great. So now let's move on to the final point, which is on how excellent mid-tenure CEOs help future-proof their organizations. Carolyn, can you take us through some of those elements? The first two are really about this notion of how are you investing and thinking about your stakeholders and frankly, having your eyes and ears out with your broad group of external stakeholders to know what's on their mind, to know what's coming and to build and continue to maintain that trust and relationship so that if tough times come, you actually already have those relationships established, right? And and we talk about tough times you know, many CEOs at some point in their tenure face some sort of crisis, right? Sometimes it's internally created, sometimes an external shock, but a crisis can mar 
the tenure of, of an otherwise you know, fantastic CEO and how you navigate those unexpected crises, those black swan events or those things that are coming up from within really can make or break not just you for your career, but more importantly, the fortunes of the company and how well it navigates. And so we, we asked that question and we looked, we talked to Ken Frazier, who is the former CEO at Merck. So they used to do an exercise every year to really think about critical risks. What are the things that could go wrong? Some people call it a pre-mortem instead of a post-mortem, right? Thinking about, imagine this is a disaster or imagine it all goes wrong. What would have gotten in our way? What would have happened? And are there things we should be doing now to make sure that it doesn't happen or that we're prepared, right? Reed Hastings at Netflix does the same thing. He says, you know, imagine 10 years out if Netflix doesn't exist, why didn't it exist? What happened? And what are the things we're thinking about now? It's all the kind of scenario planning that you hear as part of great strategy work, but it's also as a leadership team thinking ahead broadly about if some of these uncontrollable things happened, you know, we've had many of them over the last few years, what would be the conditions in place that would help us navigate it well, right? Do we have great alignment with our board on our reason for being as a company? So if we have to make quick decisions on the fly, we have alignment of what that looks like and what our, our anchor is in making those decisions. Do we have good relationships with our external constituents and stakeholders so that we're not going to them in the moment of crisis, asking them for kindness or goodwill or a favor? We've actually already established that along the way. In the banking crisis, for example, you know this is something that really, really set apart some CEOs who had good relationships with regulators, who had good relationships in the market. They became the trusted parties that folks looked to and said, okay, will you help us navigate this together? So one piece is, do you have the relationships and the communication paths that will help you navigate whatever comes? And then part of it is having a playbook or a, an operating model ready to go if, if it does come. I think what some of these CEOs talked about is it's so easy in a crisis to get pulled down into the weeds and pulled down into the minutia. Those who navigate it well actually have a, a team close to them, but separate from them, who will stand up and help navigate it. And they will be doing the daily check-ins. They'll do the important decisions. But the CEO themselves don't become all consumed by it because they need to be having a bunch of other conversations and steadying the ship. And in the Mary Barra, uh, Mary Barra example, for, for she took the ignition crisis as a real chance to pivot the organization back to a return on excellence in engineering. And so she was saying, yes, we'll get through this, we'll manage it, but actually let's use this as a moment to really double down on the things that we know are important. And what's that set of priorities in our medium term that's going to pull us out and make sure this doesn't happen again? And so you need an operating model or a team uh, in crisis break glass mode that you'll click into so that the business can continue to run and that you can continue to navigate and lead as a CEO. So there's the crisis element of future proofing. And then there's this sort of second piece, which is this is a marathon, not a sprint, right? You've probably gotten through the first phase through sheer force of will. Many times, a lot of leaders are, are exhausted at this point. Their, their teams are exhausted. And it is a good chance to reflect as a leadership team and, and yourself individually on, you know, when was the last time you got some coaching, right? Have you had some outside in perspective of how you're doing as a leader and what might be working well? Has your team done a stock take on, you know, how much energy and friction is being used in managing 
an unhealthy dynamic on the team versus making that part easy so that you can all have the energy to do the real hard work, right? This is a great moment to kind of reflect on those habits, um, literal habits. Sometimes it's exercise, sleep, eating, all of those things. But a lot of it is just in the how much sort of sand in the gears or friction in the system is there in getting things done. And could you, could you grease that a little bit? Awesome. Thank you. So we're nearing the end of the podcast, but we'd love to get your final reflections. And Kurt, maybe you can go first. Um, can you take us through your main takeaways that you'd really like our listeners to reflect on? Wonderful. If there's one or two messages that are at the top of the list that I would say to take away from this, it's that there is a second S-curve in most very successful mid-tenured CEOs journeys. And if you're playing out the, the first S-curve too long, you should really push hard to ask if you're missing something in terms of a next gear. And we do see sometimes people coast on the first one and, and believe that they've sort of locked themselves into a set of uh, strategies that basically uh, outrun their usefulness. So the most important thing from this is that there is in fact an inflection point at the mid-tenure of a CEO's career uh, when they're established. And maybe a second companion point would be that your operating model also evolves at this stage and you're you're much more leading through other people. You're looking to step up a star team as Carolyn has written about elsewhere as opposed to a team of stars. Thanks so much, Kurt. And Carolyn, you've literally written the book on this already, but what are you most excited about in terms of future research on CEO excellence? I think it's largely what Kurt talked about and this notion of take the broad research and really meet people where they are right? Because the unique questions and challenges of each of these stages is, is so important and the things people are struggling with. And so it's just been really energizing to have conversations with so many CEOs and see the unlock of, okay, what should I be doing? Awesome. Well, this is a great way to end. Carolyn, Kurt, this is, as always has been a really fun session. Thank you for taking the time with us today. Thanks so much, Sean. Thanks. Thanks, Sean. And I'd also like to thank you, all of our listeners, for joining us today. I encourage you to visit mckinsey.com slash CEO journey, where again, you'll find all of the articles, podcasts, and other materials in our CEO excellence collection. We'll also include a link in the show notes. As always, if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at ITSR at McKinsey.com. That stands for Inside the Strategy Room. You can also share your ratings and reviews on any podcast player with many thanks to everyone who's already done so. We really appreciate all of your feedback and comments and encourage you to keep them coming. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to subscribe, all you need to do is follow our weekly series on any major podcast player where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. We also offer an Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page available at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can easily search all of our prior podcasts across six major themes and also access written transcripts of those conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, we encourage you to sign up on our insights page at mckinsey.com SCF for strategy and corporate finance, or follow us on Twitter or X at MCK strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey strategy and corporate finance practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the strategy room.